And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together in this moment be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've had two weeks off. We had Harvest Sunday. Thank you for all the fantastic uh, donations for Harvest. And then last week we uh, heard from Stuart this fantastic exploration from uh, One Kings. And if you missed either of those, do catch them on our YouTube channel or the sermon on our website. Um, But today we return to our Walking Together series, Exploring the Psalms of Ascent. This distinct collection within the bigger book of Psalms, sung by God's people as they journeyed together towards Jerusalem, opens up for us lots of different things. These Psalms reflect on the character and nature of God. They speak about what it's like to live a life of faith. And they capture something of the essence of what it means to be a worshipping community, walking our journey of faith with one another. And so this morning we come to Psalm 126. It's number seven in the collection of 12 for people who care about that sort of thing. And as the people sing it together, you sense that it's a psalm of longing, of hope and of faith. The people are praying for renewal and for restoration. We were like those who dreamed. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Now there's quite a bit of repetition in the psalm. That usually tells us, uh, gives us a clue what the main things we're supposed to take away from it are. Restore the fortunes appears twice. The Lord has done great things as well. And there are two references to weeping and sowing and reaping and songs of joy. The Hebrew words for laughter and or joy occur five times in six verses, which all together combines, I think, to give the psalm quite an emotive and emotional feel. It's about joy remembered, and it's about joy anticipated. And in both of those, the joy is a work of God. Now, restore the fortunes is a translation of a Hebrew idiom that isn't very easy to directly replicate in English. It's an expression that's primarily found in the writings and speakings of the prophets in the Old Testament, where it's used to describe the radical change from conditions brought about by divine wrath to those which result in divine favour. It means the restoration of an earlier situation between the people and God. And this form of words, this idiom, is used in the Psalms with the same sort of meaning. The people, as they gather, as they sing, are remembering a time in their history when God has done amazing things and restored the fortunes of their nation, of their ancestors. You know, as I read this this morning, David, I thought about you. And um, I'd often remember different ones of you as I'm preparing sermons. And I had you in mind because in our last church meeting, you spoke... I thought really powerfully about how God has been good to our church in the past and therefore we have confidence for the future because we can see how God has been good to us and that helps us have faith for what comes next. That's what they're experiencing here in this psalm. 
and what they remember about their past, all that was good and the restoration work that God has done, they now pray will be true for them in that moment. What has gone before gives them hope that God can do a new work and breathe new life. They need renewing. And so their prayer is that their tears will become songs of joy. And given all of that, I think it's not a great galloping shock that it's a psalm that is often used when we come to pray for the church with a big C, the church's own restoration. In the lectionary, those set readings that so many of our sisters and brothers use each week, this psalm is often used in the seasons of Advent and Lent. And heard in those seasons, it speaks of the great change that occurs in the resurrection and birth of Jesus Christ and puts before us the idea that it's only those who move towards Christmas and Easter with tears of repentance that may enter into the joy of the great thing that God is doing. And so all that being said, I wonder how that psalm lands with you this morning. I wonder if the sense of longing for things to be better resonates with you in some way. I wonder how you feel about the potential for songs of joy to be sung again in your life and in our life together, especially if at the moment your story is one of tears and of struggle. In some ways, the message to us of the psalm could be quite a simple one. Remember the faithfulness and goodness of God in the past and use that to fire our faith as we look to the future. Or in the words of 1 Thessalonians, that the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And in a little while, we'll share bread and wine together too, which is perhaps the ultimate expression of how sowing in tears can be reaped in songs of joy. As we remember the sacrifice and anguish of the resurrection and celebrate the joy and hope of new life made possible because Jesus is alive. It's a wonderful representation for us, of the Hebrew idiom that's found in this psalm, where God restores all that needs restoring between us and God, dying for our sin and making a way for freedom and truth and wisdom and grace in your life and in mine. And so as I prayed, as I prepared for this morning, what I wanted to be able to say now is, And here's four handy things to take away from this psalm that you can implement into your life. But sometimes the Bible doesn't give us that. And actually the very worst thing we can do is attempt to contort the scripture into a pre-ordained and organised box. The very worst thing we can do is disrespectful to the scripture. So more than anything else this morning, I think this message, the message from this psalm for you and me, if you remember nothing else, is that God can and does restore. Not just in the past, and we're not talking about a plaster, a patchwork job, but instead that God can and does restore in full. I guess... We might not always see it, this side of glory. But friends, hear the word of God to the people through the prophet Joel this morning. 
when God says to the people whose crops have been ravaged and whose livelihood has been destroyed, God says to them, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Now the the people faced devastation when the prophet Joel spoke those words. You see, when the desert locust is around, there's always a chance something dangerous is going to happen. Because one thing we know about locusts is they like to get together. And a desert swarm of locusts can pack about 60 million locusts into less than half a square mile. And they can journey together for hundreds of square miles. And what the book of Joel is talking about is how the locust, the destroyer of the crops, has ripped the heart out of the people. Because now they have no food. And they have nothing to sell, to make money, to buy the other things that they need either. It's describing every farmer's worst nightmare. Did you know? This is the kind of information I like to bring to you, right? Each locust can eat its weight in plants in 24 hours. So a full-size swarm can eat 423 million pounds worth of plants, that's as in weight as opposed to Morley's prices, worth of plants a day. A day. A whole year of crops gone in minutes. A whole nation's survival disappearing before their eyes. There's something about that sort of attack with its insatiable appetite that evokes something of a horror film. There's nothing that can be done except to grab the shoulder of the person next to you and scream. Now, there may well have been a locust swarm in Judah in the 5th century, but for the prophet Joel, the swarm of locusts is a metaphor for the invading armies that had swarmed into the land of Israel in the preceding centuries, laying waste to the cities, plundering the countryside, and leaving God's people in despair. And this is where the power of the picture, the metaphor, really kicks in. God visits every part of the suffering land and reawakens it, starting with the soil, moving on into the animals of the field, the trees, and finally the rain clouds. Read Joel too, sometime this afternoon. It will bless you, I promise. Then when everything has come back to life, God delivers on his promise and the people will eat and be satisfied and God will dwell in their midst. It's great and welcome news and the people are bound to hear it metaphorically as well as literally. That's to say that there are good times coming for their nation too. But think what this might mean for you and for us this morning. The long nightmare, the prophet says, is more or less over. I'm not making that as a comment on the last 12 years, by the way. That's not what I meant. The long nightmare is more or less over and there is hope instead of good things that are to come. It's good to know that there are good things ahead, isn't it? But where does that put the lost months and the lost years that you have suffered? What joy does that bring to the time in our history that will always be our history that we will struggle to put into words? The period of our lives that we can't find sense or meaning in. What about those moments where something occurs for us that brings back a wave of memories from that difficult time and in that moment we hope nobody says anything nice 
or places a hand in our shoulders because we're not sure we're going to be able to hold it together if they do. Here's where God speaks right into the heart of that despair. I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Friends, listen to that this morning. Because God doesn't just offer a promise about the future, that the good times will roll and you can forget about your past. This is different. It's a promise of healing. I will restore the years, God says. The weeks that you spend cross and frustrated at your parents who increasingly need to be looked after and to be followed by months of guilt when they then pass away. God will restore those years. The desperation of trying to find a job month after month after being ruthlessly set aside by the corporate machine. God will restore those years. The unbridled guilt and tension consistently leaving their mark as a result of so many lost years in difficult, even destructive relationships with our parents, our spouses, our children. God will restore those years. Think of your own story for a moment. I understand if you've heard those promises before and you've built up a resistance to letting them reach the raw parts of you that still yearn for understanding and renewal. But hear this word today. God says, I will restore those years. I suspect many of you know exactly what period of your life God is talking about this morning. God knows what weeks and months and years. So how does this work? How do we bring this to fruition? Well, restore, of course, can mean replace, linguistically. And on the surface, that looks like what God is doing, giving them more grain and wine to replace what's been taken away. When a friend has something precious and we break it and we cobble the money together and take them a new one. That had that experience? And they pretend that the replacement is just as good. But seldom is it really, is it? It's not quite the one that you had before. Restore can mean reimburse. When we've lost something, we can try to make up for it by compensating its value. But things that are really valuable are worth a whole lot more than money. You still take the money, of course, but it's not quite the same. The difficult times we face can't be replaced, and we can't be reimbursed for them either. So how do they get restored? Well, friends, what they can be is reincorporated. That's to say they can come to shape our future in unexpected and beautiful ways. When experience does nothing more than take you back to difficult times like a bad migraine, there's not much to be said for it, really. But when experience, given time and understanding and discernment and gentleness, and when we find ourselves later in a situation that calls for those resources that we can draw on them, then that experience can be a deep well of wisdom that can be used to bless us and other people. And if you're thinking to yourself as you sit there this morning, all right, Dave, I hear that. But I can't imagine any circumstances in which that time of my life can come to be any kind of blessing. The answer may be perhaps not yet. But there could be something that happens in your life 
that will lead you to see it differently. At the very least, those periods of pain and confusion and darkness we face inform our compassion because we're able to realise that if we have those times in our lives, maybe the person sitting next to us or the person we've just met does too. And so hear those words once more. I will restore the years the locust has eaten. God is a God of restoration. Imagine no longer having to work really hard to block out the painful memory or having to artfully dodge the subject every time a conversation gets close to locust territory. Imagine a future where you didn't have to ignore those difficult things, but those things are grafted back into your story, not as burdens or struggles, but as wisdom and compassion. That is exactly what our faith has the capacity to do. It restores our past and it opens out our future. You know, in church, in faith language, we talk about resurrection. The locusts scorched the earth until there was no life in it. Jesus was buried in that same earth until there was no life left in him. But he was brought back into the story resurrected and offering us new life and hope and freedom and strength. It's resurrection with Jesus, placing our hand in his, trusting him, listening to him, inviting his spirit into our lives, including the difficult and dark bits that finally begins to heal the locust years, gives us back our past as a gift and begins to build a hopeful future out of the ruins of our difficult histories. Is it really beyond God to restore even the darkest periods of your year, of your story? Are you happy to let the swarming locusts have the last word? Because the God who transformed the greatest waste of all, the ruthless crucifixion of God's own Son, Can God not restore your years? Can God not resurrect even 